Welcome to Beyond Barbarossa, the first English language podcast in the world to focus on the Eastern Front of World War II. I'm Scott Burry. I'm podcasting to you today from the Redbeard Studio, located on traditional Anishinaabe Algonquin territory, sometimes called Ottawa, Canada. Make sure your earbuds are charged and you have some snacks and coffee. This one's going to be intense. Our subject today is the USSR's winter campaign of 1942. There have been a few special episodes recently of this podcast. The last chronological episode, The Death of Barbarossa, covered the final failure of Operation Barbarossa, Nazi Germany's invasion of the USSR, that started on June 22, 1941. By December 5th, it was over. When Hitler authorized the Wehrmacht in Russia, the front lines in the East were pretty much all in Russia, the country itself, by this point. Hitler allowed the Wehrmacht, all the forces on the Eastern Front, to move to a defensive posture, to dig in for the winter, mostly because they weren't advancing anymore and they were worn out after six months of nonstop fighting and constant exhortations to keep advancing. Hitler did not do this willingly. It took a lot of arguing. And in fact, uh, his chief uh, of the, the head of the uh, OKH, so the Supreme Commander, military commander of the forces, uh, had to resign uh, or be fired. So a number of generals were fired for saying, hey, we got to stop. So, unbeknownst to the Germans, so at this point, the Soviets brought in as many as 11 whole new armies. Some came from Siberia and the Far East, and five were newly recruited from areas that were still under uh, Soviet control and were then trained and stationed um, beyond the Volga, so east of the Volga River, and then in December brought into the vicinity of Moscow for the city's defense. So the front lines have pretty much solidified, stopped moving at this point by early December 1941, uh, all around uh, Leningrad in the north, outside of Moscow in the middle, and pretty much taken all of Ukraine in the south up to the city of Rostov. This was after incredibly huge losses for both sides. In fact, in Retreat from Moscow, A New History of Germany's Winter Campaign, 1941 to 1942, a book just published in 2019, history professor David Stahl states, quote, by the beginning of December 1941, conditions at the front saw both armies suffering frightful shortages and living in desperate conditions across most of the line. End quote. So, as I said, last uh, episode that where we talked about the chronological development of the war in the East, we ended with the end of Operation Barbarossa. So this episode, we're moving beyond Barbarossa to the next stage, which began roughly with the new year 1942. It's the Soviet winter campaign. So before we go any further, let's take stock. Since June 1941, Germany's invasion, 
200 full Red Army divisions have been destroyed. That's nearly 3 million men killed, another 3.3 million taken prisoner. In addition, there are at least as many sick and wounded. That doesn't count civilian losses and displacements. Millions of people evacuated farther east or now captured and living under occupation by the Germans. It's only in comparison that the German losses seem smaller, but it's still a staggering number. 302,595 men killed, another half million missing and wounded. As covered in the Death of Barbarossa episode, Hitler fired Walter von Brautich, the aristocratic commander-in-chief of the German armed forces, his top guy. And then he took personal command of the armed forces. On December 1st, Army Group Center, the group tasked with conquering Moscow, had 1.7 million men around the city. Well, actually not. They were just on paper. However, says Stahl, it was a shadow of its former strength in real terms. They were exhausted after six months of constant fighting, and they did not have proper winter equipment, not even good warm uniforms. No, they didn't have proper winter clothing in Russia in December. They also faced yet another challenge, if they didn't have enough already. Again, quoting David Stahl, quote, the Wehrmacht had to win outright at all costs, while the Red Army had only to survive as a force in being, end quote. So put another way, in order to survive, Germany had to win completely. The Soviet Union just had to not lose. So in order to not lose, the Soviets were bringing in whole new armies. And this was something the Germans did not know about. In December, the German high command thought that the Red Army had no reserves left. It seemed logical, given the millions of losses. But, as I said, Stalin was bringing in armies from Siberia and the Far East and raising new ones from uh, volunteers. In fact, uh, in November and December 1941, just those two months, the Soviets were able to recruit five new armies in central Russia. So that's the situation in Russia at the end of 1941. Now let's uh, zoom out a little bit and take a look at what's going on elsewhere in the war uh, as 1942 begins. On January 2nd, the Japanese captured Manila in the Philippines. American and Filipino troops retreated or began the retreat to Bataan, the notorious Bataan. On the 6th of January, the British advanced on El Algila, Libya, in North Africa. On the 11th, the Japanese captured Kuala Lumpur, Malaya, and invaded the Dutch East Indies, the country we now know as Indonesia. On the 19th of January, the Japanese captured large numbers of British soldiers north of Singapore. On the 20th, the Nazi Wannsee Conference in Berlin came up with its first so-called final solution to the Jewish problem, which was, at this point, just relocation. We're going to kick them all out of the areas we really want. The decision to exterminate the Jews came later. On January 21st, Africa Corps, so the German forces under Erwin uh, Rommel, uh, made a surprise offensive at El Algila and captured Agadabia. 
in Libya. On the 23rd started the Battle of Rabaul in New Britain, or New Guinea today, Australian territory in the Pacific, or between the Pacific and the Indian Oceans, I guess, more correctly. On the 29th of January, so January is a bad month for the Allies, Rommel's Africa Corps recaptured Benghazi in Libya, and by February 1st, they reached El Ghazala, Libya, near the Egyptian border. Now remember, for all the attention uh, the Africa Corps gets in the West, and the battle, or the fighting, the whole war in North Africa, subject of many very romantic movies, and in fact there's another Netflix show that just came out about, called uh, Rogue Heroes, about uh, British special forces in North Africa during the war. So for all this attention that it gets, this was a much smaller war. Africa Corps, the vaunted Africa Corps, commanded by the Desert Fox, was only three divisions. Rommel, at maximum, commanded 45,000 men, compared to the three million German soldiers deployed to the Eastern Front. So that's the overall picture of the war. As I said, the beginning of 1942 looked really bleak for the Allies. So let's now zoom in once again on the Eastern Front. So now we're going to look at the Red Army's winter campaign in 1942. That's what they called it, the Winter Campaign, or the Moscow Strategic Offensive. And it incorporated the Orel-Bolkov Offensive and many others. These are boring names, not cool names like Operation Barbarossa or Operation Typhoon, or even like the Western Allies with Operation Overlord. So uh, here's your opportunity to weigh in. Share your favorite Operation titles. Is it Operation Sea Lion, Operation Crusader, Operation Pedestal, what, uh, Case Blue, whatever. Tell me what you think is a cool name. Send it in to uh, me at contact at beyondbarbarossa.ca by email or log into the Facebook page, Beyond Barbarossa, um, or by Twitter, Scott the Writer. So the Moscow Strategic Offensive lasted from the 5th of December 1941, so the very day that uh, Hitler allowed the Wehrmacht to adopt a defensive posture, so it lasted from that day to the 7th of January, 1942, which we covered in episode 18, the death of Barbarossa. At a tremendous cost in lives, military and civilian, the Red Army drove the Germans away from their capital and brought the city some breathing space. Not a lot, but some. This operation was followed by a number of uh, other operations or attempts to uh, counterattack the Germans, and these overlapped in time and a little bit in space as well. So uh, in order of start date, they were the Kerch-Feodosia amphibious operation in the Crimean Peninsula from the 26th of December to 19th of May, 1942, so nearly five full months. The Luban offensive operation from the 7th of January to the 30th of April, 1942, the Demyansk Offensive Operation, or the Demyansk Pocket, also starting on January 7th and ending on May 20th. From the 8th of January to the 28th of April was the Orel-Bolkov Offensive Operation, 
The Rejev Vyazma Strategic Offensive Operation, also called the Rejev Meat Grinder, also started on the 8th of January and lasted over a year. And I will be devoting an entire episode to the Meat Grinder. The Bodvenkovo Lozovaya Offensive Operation lasted from the 18th to the 31st of January. And then finally, the Bolkov Offensive started on uh, March 24th and lasted till 3rd of April. So you can check in map one in the show notes and on the website to see where all these places are. That's a lot of separate operations going on at pretty much the same time. And it meant a lot of units, a lot of men fighting, women too, using an awful lot of equipment and ammunition. It was Stalin's idea, and it was ambitious, extremely ambitious. And every single one of these initiatives was a costly failure for the USSR. Check out map one in the show notes and on the website to see where all these different places are. So let's get into them. After the Germans got within sight of the spires of Moscow's churches, so they said, the Red Army's huge counteroffensive pushed them back 100 to 250 kilometers or 62 to 155 miles, depending on which particular axis you're talking about. This cost them some 139,000 men killed or missing, another 231,000 wounded. Combined with the defense of Moscow against the German drive from September to November 1941, or Operation Typhoon, the Red Army suffered over a million casualties against 174,000 for the Germans, so almost 10 to 1 ratio. In the north and south, the Red Army had also scored a couple of victories, liberating or retaking Tikhvin in the north and Rostov-on-Don in the south. Stalin saw this as a win, even a turning point. So, thought, let's keep going. And he ordered counter-fences all along the front to drive the Germans back to Berlin. Most of his senior commanders didn't quite see things his way, but they knew better than to argue with Stalin. A lot has been made of Hitler's micromanagement of the war, especially after he uh, took personal command in December 1941. And he had often lethal responses to those who disagreed with him. But that was nothing compared to Stalin. Just look at the purges of the Red Army in in the 1930s. But anyway, Stalin is no threat to me now, so I can point out the folly, the hubris of his ways. Stalin ordered advances all across the front, as I said, aiming at encircling the entire German army group center. Again, I'll turn to David Stahl and his book, Retreat from Moscow, uh, who sums it up very well. Quote, it was a colossal undertaking for which the Red Army was manifestly unprepared unsupported, and grossly deficient in the necessary command and control skills. The second half of December had already illustrated the dangers of failing to exploit costly tactical breakthroughs, which stemmed, in no small part, from spreading available reserves too widely, diluting the strength of subsequent attacks. The attacks confronted all of Klug's, the commander of Army Group Center, major formations with a degree of crisis, but nowhere near decisively, end quote. But Stalin saw it this way, quote, the Germans seem bewildered by their setback at Moscow and are poorly prepared for the winter. 
Now is the time to go over to a general offensive, end quote. And a final victory over the Nazi Reich by the end of 1942. And in addition to this scheme to encircle Army Group Center, he also wanted simultaneous offensives in the north and south, lifting the siege of Leningrad and liberating the Donbass. And of course, Crimea, of course, that's all. Thing is, Stalin got what Stalin ordered. Grigory Zhukov, chief of staff of the Red Army and basically Stalin's right hand militarily, suggested advancing another 130 to 160 kilometers or 100 miles roughly, north and northwest. He also, though, asked for new armies and to concentrate forces to give them local numerical superiority over the Germans. They would need a lot of reinforcement. The Red Army in January 1942 had a total of 600 heavy tanks and 800 medium tanks, and many of these were still outmoded, not the new and feared KV-1 and T-34s. Zhukov did not get what he asked for. Now, what was worse than the small numbers of, uh, of tanks at, the, at this time? Okay, it seems like a large number, but over this incredible front, that's all the way from the Baltic Sea to the Black Sea, okay? 1,500 to 1,800 kilometers, depending on how you measure it. Um, what was worse, though, than this lack of training and equipment were the inexperience of the officers uh, who were frankly, more afraid of their superiors and high command than they were of the Germans. A Stavka report of 22nd January 1942 cited, quote, a range of failings in the battlefield use of tank forces, quote, end quote, that result in high losses of tanks and personnel. The failings boil down to poor organization, a lack of cooperation between infantry, artillery, and tank units, where infantry don't protect or cover tanks, and tanks while they're awesome killing machines, are vulnerable to infantry attack, and they only work well when they are accompanied by infantry to protect them. Trouble was that what was happening on the front, and on these uh, constant counterattacks that Stalin insisted on, is that when tanks arrived, new tanks would arrive at the front, local commanders would just throw them into battle as soon as they got there. Instead of gathering a significant force and organizing some kind of strategic or tactical operation, one uh, army report stated, quote, tank crews themselves, having been given objectives, attempt to reach them without the appropriate skills in a straightforward manner, most frequently attacking frontally, end quote. So yeah, they just charge straight ahead. And as we can see right now in 2023, Ukraine. That doesn't work. Instead of authorizing more training and taking time to address the organizational and training problems or to concentrate the armies arriving from the Far East into positions for overwhelming the Germans in key points, Stalin insisted on moving quickly while the Germans were seemingly on the back foot. He had some data on his side. He said the Germans had lost as many as 300,000 men between the 6th of December and 15th of January. This was a gross overestimate. It was propaganda. But Stalin seemed to believe that it was incompetence and cowardice that caused the Red Army's problems on the front. 
The incredible losses the Red Army suffered from June to December 1941 can account for a lot of the inexperience at the root of these mistakes, right? The, the officers were killed. But there's something else. Stalin's purges, as I mentioned, through the 1930s that murdered the most experienced and independent-thinking senior military officers. Stalin refused to consider this. He focused on minutiae, as if they could account for the failures across the greatest front in military history. Quote, and this is from a, uh, a memo that Stalin himself wrote. Often we send the infantry into an attack against the enemy's defense line without artillery, without any artillery support whatsoever. And after that, we complain that the infantry won't go against an enemy who is dug in and is defending himself. It is clear, however, that such an offensive cannot yield the desired effect. It is not an offensive, but a crime, a crime against the motherland and against the troops which are forced to suffer senseless losses, end quote. Yeah, that's true. What he leaves out of that argument is what tyrants always leave out of the blame game, their own culpability. At the front lines, captains and other lower level commanders had to choose between ordering an attack or disobeying orders from above. They're told, take that objective by such and such a time, no questions. If they didn't obey by sending young men to certain death, they could very well be shot themselves, and they were. And this reality, this attitude, percolated up the ranks to the very top. You just did not say no to Stalin. Now that the stage is set, let's get into the nitty-gritty. Starting with the Kerch Feodosia amphibious operation. I really wish the Soviets could have come up with a cool name for this one, like Operation Aquaman or Operation Golden Horde. But anyway... The Battle of the Kerch Peninsula began with the Kerch Feodosia landing operation on December 26, 1941. So as I covered in episode 13, the invasion of Crimea, and if you haven't heard that, maybe after this episode is over, go back and, re and, uh, and, and play that one. Anyway, uh, the Wehrmacht under Field Marshal Erich von Manstein had taken almost all the Crimean Peninsula by the 22nd of December. The only part he hadn't captured was the city of Sevastopol. Now, to understand this operation, it's necessary to have a good understanding of the geography of the Crimean Peninsula, which sticks out south from Ukraine into the Black Sea, setting apart the Sea of Azov. The major city of Sevastopol is near the southern tip of this diamond-shaped landmass. There are two more peninsulas. Peninsulae? I'll have to look that up. Yeah, sticking out east and west from the main part of Crimea. The long, thin peninsula proceeding eastward reaches toward the Taman Peninsula from, the southern, from southern Russia. At the end of it, making a sea gateway to the Sea of Azov, is the city of Kerch. So map two in the show notes on the webpage is um, the overall Crimean Peninsula. And map three... Uh, it zooms in and shows the uh, attack or the plans for the attack on the Kerch Peninsula, so that easternmost extremity. Um, it's a, a Russian map, so the uh, writing is in Cyrillic. Uh, you can now, if you know Cyrillic writing, you'll see uh, Feodosia 
near the bottom there, uh, bottom left, not exactly the corner, a bit up from that. And then right side, Kirch. Uh, you can, again, you'll have to understand Cyrillic to, uh, to read Kirch. So as I said, by the 22nd of December, uh, all of Crimea has been taken by the Germans and the Soviets are just hanging on at Sevastopol. On the 26th, the Azov Flotilla of the Red Navy carried in two divisions of the Soviet 51st Army to eight beaches north and south of Kerch. This was a diversion. The plan was, uh, with the Germans were tied up and distracted by these invasions, the um, 44th Army would land at Feodosia, 100 kilometers or 60 miles west of Kerch, thus in the German rear. And they would strike west to link up with the Selprit Coastal Army, the holdouts in Sevastopol, on the far western end of the Crimean Peninsula. They'd be supported by artillery from the Black Sea Fleet, what remained of it after Odessa and Sevastopol, and their support from bases on the Taman Peninsula across the Kerch Strait. This would be the first amphibious assault in Soviet history. And on paper, it looked great. Facing them was just a single German infantry division, the 46th, with two coastal artillery battalions with obsolete cannons, a combat engineer regiment, and a Luftwaffe anti-aircraft battalion. So, as you might expect, this complex operation did not go off according to the plan. A lot of Red Army soldiers drowned in the landings on the beaches. They didn't have real landing craft. They had to use whale boats. And don't forget, it's late December. The water's freezing. They hit the beaches at 0630 when it was still dark. It's December. At one landing, out of a thousand men, only 18 made it to shore. By noon, they had some 3,000 men and some T-26 tanks and a few artillery pieces ready to go. So there they are on the Kerch Peninsula. The problem was the Germans knew they were coming. They had spotted the buildup of the Soviet forces across the strait the day before. Before noon of the 26th, medium bombers and Stuka dive bombers were counterattacking, sinking several of the troop transports, and the troops that had made it to shore at Theodosia didn't have the radios to communicate with each other. They dug in and waited for reinforcements to arrive, according to the plan. That was the idea. But the reinforcements took three more days because the bad weather just prevented the crossing. On December 27th, the Germans launched a major counterattack with infantry, artillery, and dive bombers, forcing some Red Army soldiers to fight in waist-deep water at the, in the sea at Cape Zouk, which is north of Kerch. The Soviets' main attack hit Feodosia's beaches on December 29th, but the Germans were ready. Two light cruisers, eight destroyers, 14 transports, two submarines, and many small craft steamed toward the port of Feodosia. Despite German defense, nearly 2,000 Soviet soldiers landed in the harbor and took the city by 10 in the morning. The Germans retreated and set up a new defensive line 20 kilometers west of the city. By the 1st of January, so New Year's Day, the Soviets had landed another three rifle divisions, 23,000 troops. But in three days, they managed to advance only 10 kilometers. 
by January 2nd, the front was static. However, you can say in a way they had a, a bit of a win here. They had prevented Sevastopol from failing, from falling completely. Even though they didn't manage to connect uh, with, the, with, the, uh, with their fellows, um, they had relieved pressure by drawing the German forces farther east. Casualties were high. The Soviets lost 32,000 men killed or captured, other 9,482 sick or wounded, including a lot of hypothermia. The Germans counterattacked again starting on 15th January 1942, sending two infantry divisions, two more battalions and assault guns, as well as Romanian troops to hold the Soviets back at Kerch. Then the 30th Corps left the siege of Sevastopol along with Luftwaffe units, and this Corps pushed the 44th Red Army back in five days, back all the way to the very tip of the peninsula. By January 25th, they had killed some 6,700 Red Army troops, destroyed 85 tanks, and taken 10,000 prisoners. On their side, they lost 995 casualties. Some 243 were killed or missing. The rest were wounded. And they held the Soviets basically at the very eastern tip of the Kerch Peninsula. Kozlov, the commander of the Caucasus and now renamed the Crimean Front, took a month to rebuild his forces. The Red Army even built an ice road across the Kerch Strait when it froze over. This is the same strait that Vladimir Putin would build a bridge over, um, or he would order a bridge to be built over, and that was blown up by Ukrainians last year. Finally, the Red Army launched another assault to break out of Kerch on February 27th. They gained a little ground, but they were ultimately stalled by German artillery and air power. They finally called off this attack on the 3rd of March, and Stalin fired Kozlov for his failure. There will be more attacks and more fighting in Crimea, but I'll come back to that in a later episode. I want to maintain the chronological order of this podcast. So now we've reached the 30-minute mark of this podcast episode. I told you this was going to be an intense one, but your coffee's probably gotten cold by now, or maybe you've eaten all your snacks. So let's take a short break. Pour yourself a fresh cup of coffee, refill your snacks, and I'll be back in just a little while. This is Beyond Barbarossa, the first and so far only English language podcast that focuses on the Eastern Front of World War II. And by now, you know, I'm Scott Burry, writer and narrator. Right now, this podcast's only support of funding and financial support is you through Patreon. So if you like this podcast, please consider subscribing or following or whatever your preferred podcasting platform calls it so that you get it every two weeks on, on your feed. If you want to, please consider supporting the podcast through Patreon. You'll find a link to do this at the top of the webpage. For as little as $3 a month, you'll get bonus episodes and an ad-free feed. 
Another way you can support it is to consider sending links to the episodes or to the page itself to your friends who are interested in history. And this will also help improve reach and engagement. Your support goes to more research, recording time, better audio equipment, and support for Ukrainian refugees until it's safe for every Ukrainian to return home. Visit beyondbarbarossa.ca to find the links. Thanks. Thanks for coming back. Hope you've got some good snacks to eat. So now let's zoom in and take a close look at the next uh, phase of the counteroffensive, the Luban offensive operation. We're at early January 1942. On the 7th of January, as the Japanese besieged Bataan and the Italians dropped twice as many bombs on Malta as the Germans do on London, the Red Army launched the Battle of the Volkov, which the command termed the Luban Offensive Operation. See map 4 on the website. So this is in the north, around Leningrad. The, the Luban is a small town, some 90 kilometers southeast of Leningrad, and on a straight highway and rail link to the USSR's second city in Moscow. The idea of the offensive was to lift the siege of Leningrad that had begun on 8th September 1941, four months earlier. With German forces in a kind of a semicircle from the south and southeast of the city, and the Finns holding a line to the northwest, the city's only supply line by this time was the so-called Road of Life, basically, in the winter at least, an ice road over Lake Ladoga. As early as November 1941, the Leningraders' food rations had been cut to starvation levels. And starvation was a real problem in the city. Now, just to give you an idea of how this works, the normal pre-war consumption of flour for Leningrad had been 2,000 tons a day. The city authorities had cut that by late November to 500 tons. So in other words, people were getting a quarter of the amount of food that they were used to. The Germans had cut the city off from almost all provisions. And so this was the result. Now, there was one tenuous link to the east, northeast over Lake Ladoga, um, at some point, the Soviets were using barges and boats across the river to bring in some supplies, but these were vulnerable to German bombing. But by uh, mid to late November, the lake froze over. So on November 22nd, 60 trucks crossed uh, the frozen lake surface, bringing 33 tons of flour. Now remember, they need 2,000 a day, and they brought in 33 tons. The Red Army's recapture of Tikvin on December 9th, so that's somewhat to the southeast of, of Leningrad, uh, allowed some rail connections to be reestablished, increasing the amount of food that they could bring in a little bit. Still, by this point, hospitals, whole hospitals were opened, dedicated to treating the effects of starvation. Soviet sources cite 264,000 deaths of civilians over that winter, but Western historians peg the number at over a million, 
the Soviets were trying to play down the impact the Germans were having. So as I said, the recapture of Tikvin encouraged Stalin. On 7th of January, 1942, um, there, he ordered the two fronts in the area, the Red Army's Volkov Front and the Leningrad Front, to launch an attempt to relieve the city. So six armies were involved in this, the 4th, 52nd, the 59th, and the 2nd Shock Armies of the Volkov Front, and the 8th and 54th Armies of the Leningrad Front against the Germans' 18th Army of Army Group North. In total, over 300,000 Soviet soldiers versus 200,000 dug-in Germans. The Soviets cited the nature of the terrain as the reason they deployed no tanks, only infantry and artillery. But, well, let's face it, the problems the Red Army faced up to this point hadn't changed. They lacked ammunition, fuel, food, and reserves, and they just didn't have the tanks to bring in. As you can see in map four, they did manage to, two breakthroughs of the German lines, but the Germans inflicted heavy losses. The Volkov Front lost 308,000 out of its 327,000. That's almost all their men uh, as casualties. This included 95,000 killed or missing. The Germans responded with Operation Wild Beast. There's those good names again, surrounding and destroying the Second Shock Army by June 1942. So that's another failure of the Winter Offensive. Now let's shift south about 100 kilometers. We're now south of Lake Illumin. Uh, this is an important lake. Uh, the northern tip of it is the city of Novgorod. To the south, is Staria Rusa, which is a very important rail link. It's quite a, it's a hub for the area. And this is where we're going to look at the uh, Demyansk offensive operation, also called the Demyansk pocket. Now, rail transport was incredibly important on the Eastern Front for both the Germans and the Soviets. That's how they moved most of their uh, men and equipment. Stavka, the Soviet high command, wanted to sever the rail link between the German front position at Demyansk, which is northwest of Moscow, and Staria Rusa, that rail hub just south of Lake Ilmen. Uh, map 5 shows what I mean. So Stavka planned a two-pronged attack to do this. The first northern prong uh, began on the 7th of January, 1942, moving south from the shores of Lake Ilmen past Stadia And the next day, the Rzhev-Vyazma strategic offensive formed the southern prong of the two-pronged attack. They struck toward Khom, which became its own smaller pocket to the southwest of Demyansk. The goal was to encircle the 16th Army's 2nd Army Corps and 10th Army Corps, altogether about 100,000 German troops. Altogether, the Soviets brought about 400,000 men into the operation. But the first northern advance tried to move through heavily wooded, swampy terrain and heavy snow cover, slowing them down and making them even more vulnerable to German fire. On 12th February, five weeks after the beginning, the Soviets threw in two more armies into the attempt, the 3rd and 4th shock armies of the Kalinin Front, plus two airborne brigades. 
Again, difficult terrain and bad weather hampered the Soviet attack. The Germans dug in. They were trapped in a pocket, but one with two viable airfields. Luftflotte 1, a division of the Luftwaffe or German Air Force, brought in supplies. 300 short tons a day throughout the operation. The airlift also brought in 31,000 replacement troops and evacuated 36,000 wounded. Then on 21st March, the Germans began battling to escape. By 22nd April, so a month later, the siege of the pocket was over. The cost was heavy for both sides. Of the 100,000 men in the pockets, more than 3,000 were killed or missing, and another 10,000 wounded. The Luftflotte I lost 265 aircraft and 387 airmen. On the Soviet side, the losses were over 88,000 killed and missing, and 156,000 wounded. 244,000 Soviet casualties compared to 13,000 German casualties nearly 20 to 1. So not only was this a huge Soviet failure, it also convinced Hitler and Goering, the head of the Luftwaffe, that the Germans could supply encircled units by air, an idea that would figure significantly a year later at Stalingrad, significantly and horribly. Anyway, yeah, another Soviet failure in the winter campaign. But remember, the Germans had to win. The Soviets only had to not lose. And sooner or later, they're going to figure out how to not lose. We'll continue with other operations in the winter campaign next episode. But before I end, I want to point out another myth that this series of operations explodes. That's General Winter defeated the Germans. Yes, 1942 was an intense winter, the coldest of the century in that part of the world. But the Germans showed they could adapt. To quote David Stahl again, quote, By January 1942, there was an increasing sense that the formidable Russian winter was in fact something that the German soldier could contend with, and that the fears of a Napoleonic rout were in fact exaggerated. As German soldier Alfred Wilson confidently wrote home on January 3, 1942, Quote, we have already become quite well accustomed to the winter cold. We have had almost two and a half months of frost and snow. Yesterday and today, minus 34. When the wind blows over the plain, it is quite icy, but that cannot unsettle us and steal the determination for victory. The Russian also has to endure it, and sometimes under much more difficult circumstances. In terms of winter items, we have received and also organized various things. You need not send anything more, end quote. It was a source of mounting confidence that the much-lauded general winter of Soviet propaganda was revealing itself to be just that, propaganda, not a looming death sentence for every German soldier. End of David Stahl's quote. Now, while it was definitely true that uh, the initial arrival of winter in the East caught the Germans unprepared, and they had incredible numbers of frostbite cases, especially frostbite cases that required amputations. And they did have huge problems, starting engines, keeping engines from freezing. Thousands, tens of thousands of men froze to death, literally, on the fields. But they were learning. They came up with some ingenious workarounds. 
such as using petroleum jelly instead of grease for their guns, because apparently it had more resistance to cold. One soldier found a, a magic solution mixing oil with sulfur powder as an effective antifreeze. Uh, but still, lack of winter clothing continued to be a problem. The German soldiers took to lining their clothes with old newspapers for added warmth. They found, you know, put a couple of layers of newspaper underneath their clothes, and it really helped. And without adequate winter clothing, though, they could never change their uniforms, resulting in their being filthy. And as any good uh, Boy Scout knows, when they're doing winter camping, dirty clothes aren't as warm as clean clothes. Wet socks rot. Rotting socks damage feet. Germans took stripping water, warmer clothes and boots from Soviet corpses, even hacking or sawing off the legs of dead bodies and thawing them to remove the felt boots. Another tactic they turned to was to use hand grenades to blast out a shelter from the hard frozen ground. Imagine that for a minute. You place a grenade on rock hard frozen ground, pull the pin, and then you have seconds to get far enough away that the explosion that digs your hole doesn't also tear you to pieces. On the other hand, the heavy snowfall offered the Germans, now in a defensive posture, another advantage. Heavy snowfall closed roads, making it harder for the Red Army to exploit their breakthroughs, and thick snow could absorb the shock from shell explosions. In short, the cold, snowy winter of 1941 to 1942 was just as hard on the Soviets as on the Germans. Another myth to blow up is the technical inferiority of the Red Army. As we'll soon see in detail, the Red Army had the best tank of the war in the T-34 medium tank, as well as the formidable KV-1 heavy tank. And in the central sector of the Eastern Front, the Red Air Force achieved air superiority, if not supremacy. In the skies over Army Group Center, they had over 900 operational aircraft, compared to a total of 580 for the Luftwaffe. And not all of those were fully operational. Soviet aircraft flew from airfields near Moscow, with control towers, sealed runways, and importantly, hangars to keep the airplanes in when they're not flying. While the Germans basically were on open fields. This allowed the Soviets to fly a lot more sorties, over 7,000 in the first month of the winter campaign. The intense air activity, bombing and strafing, demoralized German troops. Poor invaders. These sorties also killed a lot of German soldiers and destroyed equipment and vehicles. That was just the beginning of the series of failed operations of the Soviet Winter Campaign of 1942. There's a lot more to come. Offenses of an Orel, Rzhev, Barvendovo, and Bolkov. But that's for next episode. This one is at over 45 minutes, getting too long. So, until next time. Thank you for listening to Beyond Barbarossa, the podcast about the Eastern Front of the Second World War. For a better understanding of the progress of the war, please take a look at the maps. They really help. Also the photos on the website and in the show notes. The website is beyondbarbarossa.ca or that, that will forward to the actual page. Um, if that doesn't work, just type this into the URL bar. Beyond Barbarossa dot podbean dot com. Uh, 
You can also listen to all the episodes on my own website, writtenword.ca, and click on the podcast button in the banner. Thanks to all who have supported the podcast through Patreon. Your financial support goes to better audio equipment, research, and support for charities that help Ukrainian refugees. If you like this episode, consider following Beyond Barbarossa on your preferred podcasting app. And I'd really appreciate a rating on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Podbean, or wherever you listen. Adding those really helps spread the word to others interested in history. If you find I've made any errors, please let me know. You can reach me by email at contact at beyondbarbarossa.ca or through the Facebook Beyond Barbarossa page. Also, if you just have some observations, some ideas, tips, uh, or just tell me what you think of how I'm podcasting, if I should do anything differently, please let me know. Reach out. Original music was composed and recorded by Nicholas Burry. As I told you, I'm Scott Burry. Till next time, keep your paddles in the water. Slava Ukraina.